The most dangerous place you can be as a trial lawyer is to think you've got it figured out. I'm still trying to get better. I still have the passion for it. I believe in it. Everyone can learn to do what I do. And yet there's a group here that continues to get extraordinary verdicts. Trial Lawyers University is revolutionizing educating lawyers to be better trial lawyers. It's been invaluable to me. Trial Lawyers University, where the titans come to train. Produced and powered by LawPods. So we're here with Wes Ball today, and Wes is originally from Houston, Texas. Is that right? No, I'm originally from Kingsport, Tennessee. See that? I don't know shit. But you did go to college. I mean, you went to law school in Texas, to Baylor. I went to law school in Texas. I went to undergrad at University of Tennessee. People get that confused often until you know me. And then once you know me, you realize that I have a lot of orange around me. So that's Tennessee. That now makes sense. So... Wes, besides being a trial lawyer and you're doing some great stuff there, but I know also you were telling me that you're a tarpon, some type of tarpon fisher guy. That's my <laughs> favorite thing in the world besides my family. If you wanted to sit here and talk about tarpon fishing all day long or fly fishing for another couple of species in saltwater, we could turn this podcast into a four, five, six hour thing. It probably also involves some drinking as well, but I mean, that is my favorite thing in the world to do. I feel like a lot of the times I'm working to be able to go do that kind of guilt-free. So yeah, that's my thing. And just because I've never been tarpon fishing, so maybe one day I'll go, but what's so exciting about tarpon fishing that as opposed to regular fishing? Yeah, well, it's not fishing, right? It is hunting on the water. So when I'm tarpon fishing, it's a team effort. It's not an individual thing. So we're in small skiffs, Small boats, it's all inshore for the most part. I'm in normally, you know, anywhere from two feet to six feet of water. And there's a guide on the back of the boat on a stand who pushes a boat with a pole. I'm on the front of the boat with a rod. And you don't cast at anything that you don't see. So you can spend an entire afternoon stalking one fish, really. And then you've got 30 seconds to screw that shot up to go on to the next one. So it's a real high intensity sort of, I call it a sport. I think it is a sport, but it's not a mindless thing. Frankly, I don't like fishing. I don't like going out and watching a bobber go up and down on a lake or just waiting for something to happen that you don't know that's going to happen. I don't really like that. It's kind of out of my control, so I don't find any sport to it. I like this type of fishing because it's something that at the end of the day, I can tell you more memories of losing a fish, screwing up a shot than I can of catching them. And I kind of like to do it in a way that I compete to. So I compete in tournaments that happen every year. And it's definitely become a very large part of my DNA. I think it goes well with my trial work. Well, maybe one day if I ever get out there tarpon fishing, I will understand the rush. Yeah, careful, because the first time you do it, you're probably going to do way less of these things. <laughs> that would maybe not be such a bad thing. Who knows? So tell us about, you're not very old, are you? What are you, in your 40s? Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm 47. All right. And so think about it for a second. I'm just 47, yeah. When did you realize that you wanted to become a lawyer? I think that's kind of a two-part answer because I could tell you that I publicly declared that I wanted to be a lawyer many, many years before I actually knew that I wanted to be a lawyer. So it's kind of a two-part answer. I think I started telling people for whatever reason that I wanted to be a lawyer my first or second year of undergrad. And I think I did that because it sounded cool. I was single and it was a great way to talk to nice women at the bar. Right. At least they knew you were ambitious, right? Yeah. And at some point, I think I'd said it so many times 
that it started to become a reality. You know, like, what am I going to do with myself when I get out of undergrad? And I had said that so many times, it's almost like it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I had said aloud many times that I wanted to be an international lawyer. It sounded like James Bond sort of thing. And then I'd said, you know, I want to be an environmental lawyer. And to this day, I really don't know what either one of those lawyers are. It's not really a thing. But I got to the point where it was like, all right, now I got to do something. What am I going to do? Well, how about this law thing? And then I decided to do that. And I went to, uh, I went to Baylor University. And this is where the second answer comes in. I decided I wanted to be an actual lawyer in my first two weeks at Baylor University. And I say that because Baylor is built on a very, very rich, long tradition of plaintiffs trial lawyers. And you know that from the day that you walk in, it's explained to you. The first day I walk in, you walk past a statue of John Eddie Williams, a very, very famous lawyer in Texas. There's all kinds of other effigies to really, really good lawyers, plaintiff's lawyers at Baylor. And you get all of that explained to you in the first two weeks that you're there because those guys built the law school. And it was a brand new law school that I was in, too. So all the more reason why I got to find out about the rich history of Baylor really, really cultivating a good plaintiff's bar atmosphere. So that sounded all great to me because the first thing you hear when you hear about these great lawyers is, the hundreds of millions and billions of dollars that they've made out of tobacco litigation and things like that. So obviously to a young guy like me, I was like, oh, that'll get your, your interest real fast. Like, and it did. And I think that it was something that was made for me and I didn't even know it until it kind of happened. And once I started to learn more and more about it, what plaintiff's lawyers do, who they help, how they do it, it just became a real thought to me. And I happened to meet my best friend and current law partner, been my law partner since we've been each other's law partners since 2005. We fantasized in law school about opening up our own plaintiff shop. And we never let go of that thought. We went and did work for a couple of years on our own after we graduated, but always with the goal of being able to be plaintiff's lawyers together and it just, from the day that I heard about it all the way up until today, it's a lifestyle, it's a thought process, it's a ethos, a way of life that I subscribe to that I think I always will. And I got lucky that I happened to be at the right place at the right time in order to really find that path, I think. I heard Baylor is, because a, uh, a friend of mine who you know, Rob Ammons, yeah. is a big Baylor alumni. Actually, he actually it sure is. I worked for Rob for a couple of years. Is that right before? Because Rob was telling me about the same thing you just said about like how Baylor is all about being a plaintiff's trial lawyer and stuff. Because he's actually, because I teach up, I developed kind of like a boot camp type of workshop to train lawyers like in nonverbal communication, like the eye contact, the facial expression control, the voice control, your hand movements and stuff like that. And uh, his son in law did my program. And so we talked a little bit about doing something with Baylor. Haven't done it yet, but hopefully maybe one day we will, as far as, you know, helping to train the future of the plaintiff's bar, at least in Texas. Yep. But tell us about your uh, journey from when you got your, your bar card, or even right when you got out of law school, I assume you probably went to work before you got your bar card, to when you first started your firm with your best friend. Yeah. Clerked in law school for a very well-known plaintiff shop in Houston. It wasn't known to me how well-known they were, but looking back on it, 
they're still around, very well-known plaintiff shop. And I also clerked for a large defense firm that's still around, very well-known as well. And my clerk time in law school, I can't really say I enjoyed one over the other, but it was very, very clear that I could obviously make more money coming out of law school working for the larger defense firm. I knew that I probably wouldn't like it as much, but I could. So that's what I did. I graduated law school and I went to work for this large multi-state law firm, defense firm. And I found out in the first hour to two hours that I was there that this is not for me. It was not my speed. It was not something that I wanted to do. But I gave it a little bit of time and thought maybe it will grow on me. My entire thought was, and this is something Baylor does to you, and I think it does it to people that really have it in them. It brings them out even more. I wanted nothing more than as much experience as I could get as fast as I could get it. My thought was I'm not going to be a great trial lawyer, a great plaintiff's trial lawyer, until I get as much experience as I can get. So you can imagine coming out of law school and going into a big defense firm, it's not really conducive to getting a whole bunch of trial experience. And I kind of fought with everybody in that firm, my, all my superiors, about not getting enough exposure to trial work and being able to kind of do things autonomously. And I did that for three, four, five months. And I think they looked at it like, hey, this is, I like the drive, but I don't really like the way that this is going on because I didn't want to do all the rest of the stuff. So long story short here is, is I was kindly asked to leave after about eight or nine months because I had said, I'm not doing what you guys want me to do because this is not commiserate with my goals, with what I want to do. And they were like, well, listen, first year lawyers don't tell us what they're going to do. And I was like, hey, I fully appreciate that. 100% appreciate it. I don't want any bad blood. I'll go and find my next direction. So, and one thing they'd wanted to do was they'd wanted to put me into the asbestos docket, which was still going on back in 2003. And I didn't want to go to the asbestos document or docket because that's basically just going to a bunch of depositions and raising your hand and asking two questions and then going on. And that is no experience whatsoever. So I didn't want to do it because it was too specialized and I wasn't going to get what I wanted out of it. So I contacted a headhunter and headhunter had me placed a plaintiff's firm within the week. And I think I'd given two weeks notice, but this plaintiff's firm had asked me to come over and in doing so said, listen, by the way, I'm hiring you, but I need you for trial next week. Can you be here next week? And this is like a Thursday. So I go into the people who, you know, my superiors at this defense firm and said, do you guys mind if I leave now? I've given you my two weeks or month or whatever it was, but I want to leave now because I've got a trial waiting on me. And I had no idea what the trial was about, what we were doing, nothing. I'd been told that I need to be there for trial, which was literally my dream in terms of what kind of career path that I thought that I needed to be on. So I went, I left literally that day. I think I showed up to work the very next day. I worked the entire weekend and we had this trial that lo and behold settled, I think after we picked a jury. I didn't pick the jury. I didn't take any big witnesses, nothing like that. That wasn't even a thought, but it exposed me to exactly what I wanted to do, which was be a plaintiff's lawyer and to help people. I remember our client there was a paraplegic client that we did a lot, a lot of good for. And it just, wow, it excited me like you can't imagine. So I then spent the next two years with this plaintiff's firm doing big stuff for someone who's only two years into being a lawyer. I got a lot of autonomy. 
there were big cases. I got to figure it out on my own. I got to figure it out with the help of a couple people that were around me, but I had been asked to be thrown into the deep end. And that's exactly what I got. I got thrown into the deep end and I liked it. And one of the things they had asked me to do at this firm was to uh, take over what he considered to be his tire docket, to do a lot of the work, kind of head up a lot of the work on tire cases, because when I would got there, I'd done pretty well on one of the tire cases. And I thought it was kind of funny because I kind of hearkened that back to I had already turned down an opportunity to be pigeonholed into asbestos work. Why would I take this opportunity to be pigeonholed into tire work? I was very short-sighted in that looking back on it. It didn't stop. I did it anyway, but I had that look of, or I looked at it that way, should I say. And so I did that. I worked on mainly tire cases and we parted ways after about two, two and a half years of working together. And the real main reason that we parted ways too is because during this time, going back to what I'd said earlier, Kyle and I had continuously talked about opening up our own shop. And Kyle was at an enormous defense firm. He was at Vincent Elkins, which is just a cream of the crop, you know, the very top in Texas. And neither one of us were, had been in any way whatsoever dissuaded from what our dreams were, which was to open up a plaintiff shop together. And not only that, we had been encouraged by everything we had done. Kyle wanted out of the defense game. I wanted out of just not working on my own. And we had talked about this forever. And that was kind of like, hey, listen, if we're going to do it, let's do it. We had kind of always thought that we'd go work for plaintiff shops and then seven, eight, nine years, whatever it may be, after we've got enough experience, then open up our shop. And then the opportunity just kind of presented to us and we said, you know what, it'd be better if we establish a name in the next nine years rather than spend the next nine years, nobody knowing who we are. We went for probably the dumber of the two options, right? I mean, who wants to give us a case? Why should we start a plaintiff's firm? We're both like 28 years old at the time, but we did it anyway. And we kind of always had the thought of, listen, we're just going to, we're going to do whatever we can do. I mean, I hate to say this, but like the old adage of like chasing ambulances, we literally said like, if we need to chase an ambulance, we're chasing ambulance. That's what it is. I mean, we'll just do whatever we need to do to help people and to support ourselves. And that's kind of what we started doing. I mean, we did everything. We did a smorgasbord of absolutely everything. And that was the formation, the creation of what's still going today. Um, Fair and Ball, we've got another iteration on that now. It's Castor Lynch, Fair and Ball. But that's what happened in 2005, 2006 timeframe has now continued through to the present. Probably a lot of the reason why I'm talking to you today, Dan. Right. And that plaintiff's firm, though, that was Ammons' group, right? That was your last job before you started your own practice, where you were yep. the tire guy because he does a lot of tire stuff still too, and uh, got to know him pretty well over the years. And his son-in-law is a great guy, Luke Maddox. Yeah. So you guys to start your own firm at 28, and uh, how did it go out of the gate? Was it everything you dreamed it would be? It was, and it wasn't. I mean, I will have to say that it actually was everything I wanted it to be. I mean, being your own boss, doing your own work—that's. Boy, there's something to be said for that. There really is. The previous firm that I worked at was balls to the wall, nonstop, seven days a week, 12 to 15 hours a day, if that's what you were doing. There wasn't a time to really think about what you were doing or why you were doing it for the greater good. It was just more of just go, 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 do, do, do. And this was a an opportunity to to enjoy really what you were doing. And I did, man. I still do. I enjoy what I do. I do everything I can to make sure that I enjoy it to the fullest extent because I think I'm a better lawyer when I do. So 
it was everything that I wanted it to be, but it was also a couple of things I didn't want it to be, which was I had to start to figure out the money issue of it. And that was no small task, right? I mean, two guys that are 28 years old, neither one of us has a penny to our name. Before we actually opened up our door, I think we went to, I'm not joking, I think we went to 25 or 30 banks. We got together a financial statement, all that good stuff, and went to a bunch of banks. And we we found two banks that would lend us some money. And the banks lended us a little bit of money. And that was what allowed us to kind of get our start. And we did everything. We did anything that we could do. And I loved it. I really did. I absolutely loved it. And one of the things that we had said that we would not do because the money thing was a big deal. We kind of knew it would be, but once you get into it and you realize, oh shit, I don't have any money and I need it in order to do the work that I want to do, it becomes a problem that you knew would be a problem, but now it's a real problem. So you got to deal with it. And one of the things we said, because we were having that problem was we're not doing any products cases. We're not going to do that. That'll we'll blow all of the money we've got on one case and we'll be done. And about the two or three weeks after we said that, a really, really good, big products case walked through the door. And it was a case with a death and a quadriplegic ventilator-dependent 34-year-old woman. How'd they find you? I mean, you're a young lawyer, just out of the gate, just started. Usually, people of your age and experience don't hit the whopper whales of a case. They usually go to, you know. Yeah. They found us through somebody I had worked with at my last firm, and that person had actually told the other person to give us a ring because they really liked how I'd worked on some other cases before. And I think I remember the selling point was we were super young and we were willing to put all of our effort into it. And I think that's one of the reasons why they had interviewed a number of different firms. But I think that's kind of the way that it came to us. Um, It was a lawyer in uh, Des Moines, Iowa, and I think he had interviewed a lot of firms. So... When we took the case, it was kind of like, well, now how are we going to really deal with it? Because we don't have a whole bunch of money. But it was a great case. It was a really, really great case. We put everything into that case. And I think we wound up going back to the bank four or five times by the time. So we started trial lasted nine weeks. This is two years after we got the case. Trial lasted about nine weeks. By the time trial ended, we hadn't paid any of our employees, and I think we had two employees, maybe three at that time. We hadn't paid any of our employees in, I think, two months because they knew that we had a really good case and everybody was fine with it. So we were, honest to God, at the absolute bottom of the faucet. And the thought was we had said we would never take these cases because we had the potential for losing all of it. And here we are finding ourselves exactly where we said we didn't want to be. And with the only way that it could go, and me sit here talking to you today, we got a, I want to say it was a 30, I think the actual verdict was 33.9. And then it came out to be with all the interest and everything, a little under 38 potentially. And were that, it was in Des Moines, Iowa too. And were that verdict not to have happened, there's no way that I'd be sitting here talking to you. No way. How long did it take you to collect it? Again, that's one of those problems, you know, you don't even think about <laughs> it. Nice, but you can't and, spend them. So the case went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. They applied for writ, United States Supreme Court. It was upheld. So it took the judge a year to, um, uh, to rule on all the, the post-trial motions. I think the judge did that because she thought if she held on to it that the case would resolve. 
She took about a year to rule on the post-trial motions. And then it took another two to two and a half years, if I'm remembering this correctly, for it to get through the appellate courts in Iowa. Because if I'm correct now, they appeal directly to the Supreme Court of Iowa. The Supreme Court of Iowa gets an option to either keep it or kick it back down. And the Supreme Court didn't keep it. They kicked it down and let it go through the appellate process in the uh, intermediate court. That took a year and a half or so. And then they obviously appealed up to the Iowa Supreme Court. That took another year, however long. It was all affirmed. We even got a small punitive finding on it. And then they took time to appeal it to the United States Supreme Court. So I think after it was all said and done, it was probably close to four years, I bet. Three and a half, something like that, before that ever actually came to fruition. Well, thank God, because getting a verdict is one thing. Collecting is a whole other thing. Yep. So... Yeah, we learned a lot of lessons through all that. Well, in your years, you know, you've developed into obviously a pretty damn good trial lawyer, and you know a lot of great trial lawyers. So, so if somebody said to you, hey, Wes, what would you say the three qualities are of the best trial lawyers you know? What would you say? Three personality traits, qualities, whatever you want to call them. Well, I mean, one of them's a throwaway, right? You got to work hard. There's no substitute for working hard. Zero. There's just no way you can get around it. There's not enough talent that anybody has. Nothing. You can overcome talent, I think, in a lot of ways and still be a good lawyer, still be a good plaintiff's lawyer, still be a good trial lawyer. But work is number one. That's the number one paramount thing you have to do. Two, I would say to be a really good trial lawyer is you kind of have to find yourself. You got to figure out how you do you, right? I mean, when you start learning how to be a good trial lawyer, You're doing it based on a model in your head of what everybody else does. And at least for me, there were times when I'm sure I tried to imitate, that I tried to take arguments. I mean, you're always trying to figure out how to be that presence to take all of the hard work that you're doing and translating it to the jury. And you know some people do it really, really well, and you read opening arguments and you read cross-examinations and closings and all kinds of stuff and you watch people and you're like, I really love how they do it. But then, especially me as a young lawyer, you're trying to put all that together. And I think one of the things that really helped me was realizing I didn't have to be that person. Realizing I didn't have to do it in the ways that the great people have done it before me, but I needed to find out the way to kind of translate it through my own self. So you got to find yourself in order to let all of that hard work pay off. And I think that takes a while. It really does. Which I would say the next key to being a good lawyer is having the ability, maybe it's not even having the ability, just getting the experience. You can't do all the hard work and then figure out a way to translate it through yourself without having the opportunity to do it over and over and over and over and over again. So, I mean, as many small cases as I could take and try As many times as I could stand up in front of a jury, I would. And I know it used to be a lot different. You know, like 30, 40 years ago, lawyers that have had their bar card for 30 or 40 years will tell you, oh, you know, I've had 500 trials. 500 trials nowadays for somebody that wants to be a kind of a high-functioning, practicing trial lawyer is almost impossible for a number of different reasons. So you've got to figure out a way to 
take what it is that you're going to try to interpret with your kind of own self and do it over and over and over again so that it feeds in one side and comes out the other and you get to change it and constantly make it better. As far as like, because there's a school of thought that is just going to trial a lot isn't going to make you better unless you have somebody, unless you're, I agree. you know, unless somebody's mentoring you, unless you're with a better trial lawyer who's giving you feedback on what you're doing and you're deliberately doing things while you're in that courtroom to get better, working on different aspects of your skill set to get better. And no doubt, because there's people making misinterpret that just trying more cases. It's like playing more golf isn't going to get you better at golf. Doing it wrong 10,000 times in a row doesn't make you an expert. It just makes you really, really bad habits. Really bad. It, it makes you really good at being bad. It does do that. It'll make you really, really good at being bad. Comfortable at being bad. Right. Doesn't necessarily mean that you get better because you're doing it that way each time. What kind of training, I guess, do you do today and in the past to help you improve your trial game? I would say every nine out of 10 cases that we're going to try, we focus group. Okay. And we do pretty much a full on focus as well. Normally two days worth, four different panels, two thirds or two days, four panels, a third of them are a day, two panels. We do that for darn near every one of our cases, even a case that we're intimately familiar with against the particular defendant. You know, there's a number of cases out there that we'll see over and over again, every six or eight months, we'll get a new one in. It's like, oh, this is the same one as the last sort of thing. But even with those cases, we'll focus those cases. And focus in those cases, I think, is exactly what you're talking about. I know the issues in those cases, but now I'm going to focus on delivering those issues in a different way, maybe. Now I'm going to focus on how it is that I'll stack them what I'm going to lead the jury to figure out for itself as opposed to what I'm going to actually tell them one way or the other. So I think that's a big deal to me. That's a big deal is constantly focusing. Then the second thing is trying cases. I mean, it's been a little too much since COVID. If you take Kyle and I's career, we're trying on average two to three big cases a year, what we consider a big case. Definitely more than eight figures in controversy. And you do that three or four times a year. With focus groups, you're now looking at trying eight different cases a year. And my family certainly doesn't want me to continue doing that because it is such a strain. But I mean, even if you're doing two a year, you're basically trying four. So that's the experience, I think, that I'm talking about on one of the three best things you can do to become a better trial lawyer. As much as you can get of it, better it is. Yeah, a lot of reps. I know that uh, you recently took up a case against Alex Jones and the families from Sandy Hook in Texas. Yeah. So tell us, how'd that case come to you and you know the decision to take it? Yeah, so I got to give all the credit in the world to one of my favorite people, Mark Bankston, one of my partners in our law firm. Mark Bankston is just an absolute wizard when it comes to defamation cases and certainly is the driving force behind Alex Jones. The way that this kind of came to us was, if you'll recall the Parkland shooting, in the Parkland shooting in Florida, Alex Jones got on his webcast then, way before he was deplatformed, when he was on every single medium, and put up a picture of a gentleman named Mr. Fontaine. And when he did that, 
he put his picture up and said, this is the shooter in Parkland. This is the guy that killed all the people at Parkland High School. Marcel Fontaine is his name. And when he did that, know this, Marcel Fontaine had never been to Florida. He lived in Boston. He had nothing to do with it, obviously. It was just Alex Jones being Alex Jones, lying to people. So best we can tell is he goes on the internet and there was a picture of Marcel on the internet and it had him in a t-shirt that was kind of a funny riff on the communist party. It had Lenin, Stalin, and Putin and they were all holding like, you know, one was holding a martini glass and one was holding a mug and that was a riff on the communist party. And I guess because he had that shirt on, Alex pulled it off the internet, threw it up, and just said, basically, this is your murderer, people. This is the guy that just killed everybody in Parkland. He's a communist. Look at this. We got contacted by Mr. Fontaine to represent him in suing Alex Jones, to which we were very, very happy to do. Anything that we could do to kind of help the world rid itself of all of that, we were on board with. So Mark started heading that case up, and because Mark did so well with that case, he was contacted by the Sandy Hook families. And the Sandy Hook families contacted him because they had been eyeing a lawsuit against Alex Jones for a really, really long time. But I think the people that they had been speaking to weren't super, super excited about doing it. So the long story short is they're like, well, hey, if these people are suing Alex Jones on behalf of him, then maybe they'll sue Alex Jones on behalf of us. And of course, yeah, we went and met with him. And of course, it wasn't even a thought. I mean, that was something that we were willing to jump into because it was making, in my opinion, did and still does for the greater good of society. And so that trial, because parts of that trial were televised, were they not? No, the whole thing was, yeah. Okay, because I kind of remember watching parts of it and his outrageous behavior. So what was like some of the top moments from that trial? Like your best, you know, top memories from that trial? Craziness. So for anybody that's followed it, they'll know this story. But for those who haven't, enjoy. (laughs) So the trial is supposed to start on Monday. Wednesday night, I get a phone call from Mark. I think it's Wednesday night. I could get my timing off by day. But I think Wednesday night, I get a call from Mark. It's at like 3.30 in the morning. And by the way, we had already gotten geared up to have this trial like three times. And Jones had figured out a way to weasel his way out of it each time. The last time being he filed for bankruptcy with just entities that had nothing to do with anything. So this is like, again, the third time we had geared up for this trial. And I get a call from Mark at like 3.30 in the morning. And I'm thinking, Yet something's hit the bankruptcy, bankruptcy filings. We're not going to try the case. I answer the phone and Mark's like, I'm sure you're sitting down, but are you awake enough to listen? I was like, yeah. And he goes, you're not going to believe what just happened. I was like, what? And he goes, we just got an email from Alex Jones' attorney. And in that email is a link to documents. And in those documents are a copy of his entire cell phone. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. He's like, no, literally Alex Jones' entire cell phone is in it. And so the bottom line is, is we're looking at it going, well, obviously he didn't mean to send this to us because his cell phone included troves of information that he had previously said didn't exist and that he never had. So obviously they didn't mean to send us this cell phone. I'll fast forward just a little bit. There's, there's a little bit of a theory out there that, I don't know, maybe his attorney did mean to send it to us based on some things that had happened. But at least at that time, we're working under the assumption of, of course, he didn't mean to send this to Who us. Who was his attorney in that case? Ray Nile. Something Ray Nile. I've forgotten his first name right now. 
was it a different lawyer out in um when he tried it out and where was it Connecticut or something? He was also some of the trial team. I think he was actually sanctioned and wasn't allowed to speak to the jury like maybe the week before that Connecticut trial started for a whole bunch of different reasons. One of them being this. So in that link to all these documents were also all of the medical records to all of the other Sandy Hook families that we didn't represent. An obvious violation of HIPAA and everything else. And there was a protective order in Connecticut saying that none of these documents should ever be shared unless someone signs off on the protective order. Well, because we're in possession of this, we can see that a whole bunch of people have these documents they're not supposed to have, in addition to all of the information off of Joan's phone. So we immediately look at it and go, let me get a refresher on the snapback on when we have to give this information back, when we have to tell them about it, all that good stuff. So, and I might botch this timing a little bit, but the long story short was, is after we tell them, hey, you sent us some stuff that you shouldn't send us, that begins a, a countdown where they have a certain number of days to pull that, claw that information back from us so that we can't use it. But they have to, pursuant to Texas rules, do it in a fairly formal way, which is, oh, I didn't mean to send you this. Oh, thanks for telling me. By the way, pursuant to 198, or maybe it is 198, whatever, pursuant to Texas rules of civil procedure, I'd like to have all this information back. Well, we told them, you sent some stuff to us you shouldn't have sent to us. And the only thing that we got back was, here's another link. Not, we want all the information back, nothing else. And so that began the countdown. And I think it was 10 days, 10 days that you've got before you can use the information, before now the privilege has been waived. So that's on like Wednesday night and we start trial on Monday morning. So we have to make it through the entire first week of trial, beginning that countdown right there before we can use any of this information. So that's what we do. I pick the jury. Mark does opening. Kyle does a cross of Schroer, uh, his kind of henchman, right-hand man. And we make it all the way through the first week of trial. And we can't use this information in the first week of trial, but we obviously set him up and everybody else knowing what information we have, hoping that we can use that information later against them based on what they've told us in trial. So 10 days transpire, second week of trial comes, and they announce that they would call Alex Jones on like maybe, I think it's maybe the Tuesday or Wednesday, something like that. To be honest with you, I didn't think they would ever call Alex because he makes just a horrible witness. And if they didn't call him, we were never going to be able to get that information in because who are we going to get it in through? How are we going to use it? Why couldn't you have called him? We did call him. We called him in our case in chief, but that's within the first 10 days. Okay. And we can't drag it out much longer. We can't drag our case into the 10th day. Got it. So we called him and we set him up a whole bunch of different ways, knowing that he was going to lie about it. So the 10th day comes and I'm like, all right, it's the 10th day. We can use it now. And that's also the day that Jones is supposed to testify. And unbelievably so, Jones walks through the courthouse door. Again, the reason I didn't think he'd be there is because he had done such a terrible job in his testimony in our case in chief. Why call that guy again? It makes no sense whatsoever. But they do. They bring him in and they sit and talk to him for, I don't know, an hour and a half, two hours of just gibberish BS. I still to this day can't understand why they called him. He added nothing to their case. 
but it allowed us to cross them. And I would tell anybody and everybody that's listening to this, just go Google the Perry Mason moment and Alex Jones. Just do that. Come back to this podcast after you're done because you're going to laugh so hard. And by the way, we had for 10 days, Mark and I, Bill and Kyle had crafted the cross-examination that would take place if and when he were to testify after the 10th day of this information being in our possession. And we, oh, we were looking so forward to it because it was like the moment that we all wanted to happen. And so Mark begins to cross him on this and sets him up a couple of different ways. And I think, you know, the most famous part of that cross-examination was, do you know that 10 days ago, your attorney's messed up and sent me a copy of your entire cell phone. You could just see his eyes like deer in a headlight. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then the continues on exactly how we had all kind of crafted it out. And Jones on the stand at that moment said, oh, I guess you're, you're happy now. This is your Perry Mason moment sort of thing. And that's why it became the Perry Mason moment. There was so much that went into that, but that was without doubt the crowning moment of that trial. Mark should be super proud of it as he is. We're all proud of it. It was something that I think really made a difference, brought even more exposure to how bad of a person he was. And then after that, it's closing arguments and watching the jury reside with you and tell him what kind of a, a human he is based on the amount of punitive damages that they wanted him to pay. So what was the total verdicts between compensatory and punitive? I can't remember if it was 48 or 49. It was just under 50, I remember. And... I know he's been different levels of bankruptcy and everything. How's collection on that coming? Because he's a slippery one. Yeah, it's bankruptcy. I'm not a big fan of the bankruptcy rules in the United States. Mm -hmm. The judge did recently rule that he cannot escape the liability in this case or in that case, nor in the, the one in Connecticut with just the bankruptcy itself. So this is always going to be around on him. Bankruptcy is not going to extinguish it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. There's some good and there's some bad about that. The collection on it, I'll be honest with you, it's not a case that we ever expected to take to make money out of. That's not why we took that case. We took that case because we have the ability to do it and because of that ability, it allowed us to help people. That's what we wanted to do. That's why we did it. I looked at it like not only helping the Sandy Hook families first and foremost, obviously, but helping society as a whole trying our best to make sure to expose who he is and what he's done and hopefully deter others from doing the same thing. That made up a lot of my closing argument in that as well, because that's what we want. We want people, if they're going to do it, and people are going to do stupid shit like that, right? People are going to get on, lie about things and make the truth something that it's not. It's going to happen. But And some of those people are even run for president. So we want to try to dissuade this behavior. Right. Not make it acceptable. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I just want to make it such that people understand what the consequences of that may be. Right. And I think if they understand what the consequences of that may be, it'll either be toned down or will hopefully way less people will do it. Because if you keep doing it, we're going to keep coming after you in that way. I think we've got two or three other major defamation cases against major figures right now for that same reason. And I'm hoping those defamation cases get smaller and smaller or less frequent because people are starting to realize with their platform, they're going to be a target from attorneys. Just curious, who are those defendants? Can't tell you, unfortunately. Really? 
But even though they're filed, are they yeah. filed? Oh, they haven't been filed yet because if they're public record, you could. They are filed. Based on, all right. They are filed and they are public record, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you who they are because there's also some stuff. I mean, so Salem Media Group is one. You can go look up who Salem Media Group is. That's one of the major ones. But within that, there are a number of very large figures that is something I don't necessarily want to get into right now. I mean, listen, another thing about this defamation work that we found ourselves in is you kind of got to be careful about doing this work, how you do it, and really not even doing your best not to promote it. Because I would imagine when this podcast comes out, the FBI is probably going to be back at our office again. There's a lot of crazy people who follow this stuff and who are the followers of those that we are suing. And those people go off the rails. I mean, when we sued Alex Jones, the number of death threats that we got over the following six months, and frankly, still get to this day. I mean, I'll wake up probably once a week now and I'll have an email that says, I'm watching you and your family and I plan to kill all of you tomorrow. I mean, stupid shit like that. So you got to be pretty careful about that. Got it. I know recently he just got off a verdict out in uh, Philadelphia. And uh, I know that was a pretty good result because a friend of mine called me and told me about, you got to meet this guy, West Ball. He's crushing it. So what was that case about? We did. So the case was against Mitsubishi. We represented a wonderful man named Rue Amagasu. Rue is still with us today. However, Rue is a quadriplegic, a very low functioning quadriplegic at that. And Rue's grandfather actually is a gentleman by the name of Nakashima. And if you go look up Nakashima Furniture, don't please don't ask me how to spell that. If you go look up Nakashima Furniture, he's one of the first people to ever work with live edge wood and do it in a very Japanese style. And he's got a number of pieces in the Smithsonian. Was an incredibly high level woodworker. I mean, to the point that like his pieces are antiques going for ungodly amounts of money. I mean, just like a really, really talented, talented human. Those abilities were passed down to Rue. And that was something that Rue was doing. So Rue was just is uh, still to this day, obviously, a, just a beautiful human, a really, really, really good guy. And I really connected with him because Rue was a big fly fisherman. As a matter of fact, he made his own fly rods. And I really respect the man and what he's gone through. And when we were contacted through some of our other attorney's friends to look at his case and to represent him, it became very obvious what happened to him. And what had happened to him was Rue was the owner of a 1992 Mitsubishi 3000 GT. It's funny that that's the car because I'm 47. When I was in high school, like that was the dream car, that the 300 ZX and the Toyota Supra, if you might remember. No, I remember. So I find myself today on the other side of that car. And that car had in it a very, very well-known bad design. It's not just in that car, it's in other cars as well. But it's called a rip stitching. And rip stitching is essentially where you take the belt, the webbing of the belt, the nylon, and you fold it over two, three times. And then once you fold it over, then the manufacturer makes stitches in it. And the reason for that is they claim that it is an energy management system. So in a frontal crash, when your body loads the belt, as your body and the load increases on the belt, when, as in this one, you get up to about 500 pounds, then the rip stitching starts to rip apart. 
And that allows your body, supposedly supposed to allow your body and the energy to be more absorbed through the belt and to ride the actual forces of the car down. In reality, rip stitching is a terrible design and really isn't that good at all for managing your momentum or your force going forward. Really what it is is a way for the manufacturers to fine tune the loads the manufacturers were seeing on the chests of the crash dummies and the reason why they wanted to fine-tune those loads on those chests is because in order to get a five-star rating, you needed to have loads on chests at a certain level. That wasn't something that the government required. It was something that the five-star commercial ratings required. So they started doing that really so that they could kind of cheat the system and get these better loads on chests to achieve these five-star ratings. The problem with it was is it really didn't have much of a function for maintaining or for riding down the energy. And more importantly, the problem with it was is that once that rip stitching has deployed, now you've got a belt with a whole bunch of slack in it. So belts and slack doesn't really go together well with restraint. It's a restraint system, not an unrestraint system. So what happens is if you have two different incidences, should I say, in one crash, then the belt's not good for the second one. And that's exactly what happened in this case. Ru Amagasu's driving down the road he loses control of his vehicle because another car was coming in the opposite direction. He goes off of the side of the road and hits a tree head on. When he hits that tree head on, do, then he's doing at this point maybe 45 to 47 miles an hour. When he hits that tree, the rip stitching deploys. The moment after he hits that tree, he his car goes sideways. And when his car goes sideways, his momentum's no longer going forward where that rip stitching is required. Now it's going sideways. And then his car hits another tree. And when that car hits another tree, now going maybe 24 miles an hour, the car does a quarter roll onto the passenger side. And because Rue has this extra four inches of belt, because this rip stitching has come apart, his head gets pile driven into the roof. And when his head gets pile driven into the roof, catastrophic break at C2, C3. And Obviously, at that point, Rue's life is forever changed. Rue's son was in the passenger seat and walked away. When I say walked away, literally walked away without a scratch on him hardly. No broken bones, nothing like that. I think maybe some glass had cut his leg or something. Rue didn't have another, literally not one other injury on him other than his neck broken from where he had been pile-driven into the roof. So it was very obvious to us what had happened. So we spent four years working that case up, and it all came to a, a culmination in Philadelphia about 10 days ago, I guess. Uh, we had a, an eight-day trial that included jury selection, and at the end of the trial, the jury gave $176 million in compensatories, and we then started the punitive phase of that case, and after the punitives phase, the jury deliberated for about 20 minutes and added another 800 million in punitives. So it came out to nine, about 976 million total award, a little over a billion after you add prejudgment interest. That's a good result. Tell us about, I'm just curious, the 176. What was the argument slash structuring? Like, how did you... Well, there's no real argument. Because you can't ask for an amount. Nope. In Pennsylvania, it is the only state in the United States where you are not permitted to suggest or ask an amount of money. And I've tried a number of cases in Philadelphia or in Pennsylvania, 
and, and Philadelphia, obviously, but I've tried a number of cases in Pennsylvania now. And when I first started trying cases there, I hated that because I'm used to being able to suggest and ask a number and even get juries very comfortable with a large number early. I mean, I'll tell you right now, and I think all the data goes towards it, get the jury very, very used to your number as fast as you can do it. If you can do it in voir dire, do it in voir dire. If you can't, then you damn well better do it in opening. A lot of people don't like to say, at the end of this case, I'm going to ask you for $250 million. They think that they're kind of invading or stepping on the jury and saying that, or it's embarrassing almost. I don't think you should ever be embarrassed by asking for a certain amount of money. Otherwise, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. But I used to always make sure that I could get that number out as fast as I could. And when you're in Pennsylvania, you can't. And I thought that was a real negative. But I've come to learn that while I won't always do the same in every other state, it has taught me how to anchor my case a lot better. Because anchors throughout your case, when you want big numbers, is about as important as anything else. You can prove up your liability case all day long, but if they give you $2 million and you've got a guy that's got $15 million in medicals, doesn't really help you, does it? So anchoring your case all the way through from the beginning to the end is something that I've come to really enjoy and strategize on and work with my consultants and stuff on. Uh, it's something that really taught me to be a better lawyer in that way. So how did they come up with $176 million? I don't want to say too awfully much about it because everything's on appeal, but I can tell you this is directly related to how injured this man is. I mean, it really is. You know, we had Rue in the courtroom very sparingly because it was very difficult for him to get to the courtroom. And once he's in the courtroom, I mean, he has to have 24-7 care. So we had him there sparingly, not only because of his condition, because that's the strategy that we use. And you could never, ever, ever doubt how injured that man was. I think the number kind of broke down to it was a million in past meds. It worked out to be, uh, I want to say, 15 million in future on our future life care plan, which is an incredibly reasonable future life care plan for a man as injured as he is. I used to try my best to put up $40 million numbers in front of a jury on future life care plans. And I've crafted a way not to do that because I think that you can gain a little respect out of the jury by not doing that. So anyway, another 15 million in future life care and then past and future lost wages, I want to say equaled somewhere around the 5 million mark. And then the future pain and suffering, loss of consortium, use, disfigurement, that wound up being 120 million. Got it. And then in addition to that, his wife, beautiful Sumi, They've been together forever. I think the jury gave her in total in past and future a little over 20, maybe 24 or something like that. Our theme in that trial that we've had in a lot of other trials with catastrophic injuries like that is bring him home. We wanted Rue to come home. Rue is in a facility right now and has been for the last three years. Facility is a wonderful place and the people that work there are wonderful. So I don't want to disparage the facility by what I'm about to say. But I mean, the first time I walked into that place, it was straight out of, of a horror movie. You look at it and you're like, surely The Shining was shot here, right? That's this kind of place. It was an old hospital that was built, I think, for the first time, the first wing of it, maybe in like 1899. And it doesn't look like it's been updated much since then. And Rue's got a room that's eight by 10 10 by 12, something like that, that it's just his room. And he's one of the most catastrophically injured people in that entire place. 
And it's not a place you want to be. And Rue doesn't have an option but to be there because he has to have 24-7 care. So our theme in the case was bring Rue home. And we looked at it like, why wouldn't you want to bring him home? And if you want to bring him home, you understand the gravity of his injuries. And I think all of that fed to what the ultimate verdict was. And then the $800 million, I can't tell you exactly why it was $800 million, but I can tell you this. They did not like Mitsubishi. So... <laughs> That we could conclude. So we're going to do a case analysis on this trial December 5th. So save that date. We'll do that. And then October 16th through 19th in 2024, we're doing a, um, our third Las Vegas conference at Caesars Palace. And I know you're kind of an expert in products, or that's what the word on the street is. This was a products case, and most of your stuff is products. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So do you want to teach what do you think we'd like to teach because I can give you, you know, as much time as you like, since, you know, if people, somebody has expertise in something, I, I think it's always funny, like so many conferences, somebody's like, like a world-class expert in something, and the conference will give them 30 minutes or 40 minutes, the most, right. because they got to cycle through 30 speakers in two days. And, and so I don't really do it that way, because I believe that people should be where they want to be. So typically, I have seven or eight lecture tracks and 20 workshop tracks, like in the Vegas conference. And so that way, people that really want to learn about something from somebody, they're in that group. And if there's 20 or 30 people in a class instead of 200, I think that's a lot better because people really want to be there, learn that. And as a presenter, because there's nothing worse than being a presenter and you're talking to a group and three quarters of them aren't even paying attention. You know, you think to yourself, well, why don't you just go out in the hall and talk instead of, instead, you know, people here that are really invested and focused, want to learn, let them stay here and let's learn together. Yeah. So in Vegas... What do you think you'd like to teach? I think one of the most important things for being, and I wouldn't dare attempt to speak to all products. There's a lot of products on the market and dealing with an automobile doesn't necessarily mean you can now go deal with a medical device. I would probably rather, even though we do also, we do medical device litigation as well. I would rather keep it to automotive. And I think the best way to do that would be one, to teach people how to spot issues. And the way that you teach people to spot issues is by explaining how the various different components of your vehicle are supposed to work so that you find out how they didn't work and now you're spotting maybe that's an issue that we should look further into. And that's a lot. Figuring out and knowing the various parts of a restraint system from an airbag to the seatbelt and how the seatbelt works with your load limiters and your pretensioners and things like that. Like that's a lot. That's a whole lot to learn. Um, there's engineers that spent seven or eight years in school before they got to automobile manufacturers to even begin to design them. I think that'd be a good use of our time if you want to do that. I think that'd probably be a very good use of, of time. Since we have lots of time, we can do different things with it. It'd be sure. fun. I know, finally, I know that you just, you're telling me that you're highly involved with AIEG. Is that correct? Yes. What, and tell us a little bit about your involvement, yes, AIEG. your involvement there and how it benefits you in your practice. Yep. AIEG is Attorneys Information Exchange Group. You can find us on our website. I think it's AIEG.org. It is not an invitation only sort of organization, but it is a, you have to be vetted to get into it. And the reason I say that is because we really are exactly what our title is. We are attorneys that exchange information. And that is the paramount reason to be in the group. And if you don't exchange information while in the group, you're not really welcome to be in the group any longer. It is a vital part 
of my practice, of all lawyers' practice who dare go against automotive manufacturers. Automotive manufacturers, tire manufacturers, component manufacturers of the automobiles are about as complicated and as ruthless of a group as you could get. One of my mentors in Iowa once told me that civility in the law went the way of the dodo bird when products liability and automotive work started. And that's because you can't do anything in the automotive litigation area without information. You know, you might know that that seatbelt didn't work the way that it was supposed to work, but that doesn't get you very far. You've got to know where the design issues are, who spotted them, when they spotted them, why they're an issue, why they're not. The documents that are created as a result of a lot of the design, a lot of the redesign, a lot of the knowledge that the companies have, those documents are not documents that you can come by very easily. Not at all. And if you don't know what you are doing, it's very easy for an automotive company, tire, component, whatever it may be, to hide that stuff in plain sight by using words you don't understand and talking about things that you're not asking about. So attorneys information, AIAG, is set up so that the experience that one lawyer gains by working a case can be capitalized on by another lawyer and be built upon. And we really are an organization of rising tide rises all boats, really is the way that we look at it. There is not a such thing as you've had a really good case, you can keep your information until somebody calls. It is a mandatory share. We can't share everything because we have protective orders. But one of the things that the group does is we make sure that all of our members are prepared to fight that protective order fright. They're prepared with all of the briefing to make sure that when the automotive manufacturer wants you to swear to secrecy, that you make sure to fight the good fight on public knowledge and open courts and whatnot. I'm dead serious when I say it. I don't understand how you could really be successful against a, a major automotive company without having the ability to talk to others about what they've done, where they've been, and how they've done it. And sometimes you get real lucky and that exact case has already happened. It's one of my passions. I love it. I'm the president-elect of it. I'll do what I can for that organization for as long as I can because I've seen firsthand how much they help people. Yeah, that's the bottom line. And also being involved, too. I know it takes a lot of time to be involved in these organizations. I always admire people that get into leadership at AJ or the State Trial Lawyers Association. Yep. So it's a huge investment of time. Huge investment of time. Well, Wes, I appreciate you coming by and sharing this time with us and telling us a little bit about these different cases. I look forward to- Yeah, thanks you know, for having me. I really appreciate it. Doing your webinar and also prepping for it and learning more about this case, whatever it is you can share. I know that it's uh, on appeal, so therefore you won't be able to become give 100% disclosure on what's, what happened there, but maybe 90%, 95%. I don't know. The key, yeah. I always call it like the turning points of trial, like the things that you did there were like, okay, I think I did this at a really high level that really helped- get the result, but also things that perhaps, you know, in the course of an eight-day trial, sometimes as much preparation as sometimes some strategic errors or sometimes witness errors. You're like, oh, I won't do that one again, but I survived it. I had enough good stuff going. That little misstep wasn't exactly a line, a landmine. It's more of a little trip up instead of a trap door. You got it. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, thanks for the invite. So we'll take care of that. We'll work on that stuff. And uh, I look forward to that. So you have yourself a great rest of the day. And I'll see you in about a few weeks, probably, for the, the webinar. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. All right. You take care, Wes. I'll see you. 
Ready to train with the Titans and set records with your verdicts? Register for our live conferences and boot camps at triallawyersuniversity.com. Start getting your reps in before the big event by going to tluondemand.com to gain instant access to live lectures, case analysis, and skills training videos from the trial lawyer champions you love and respect, as well as pleadings, transcripts, PowerPoints, and notes for a roadmap to victory. Join the group that continues to get extraordinary results. Trial Lawyers University. Produced and powered by LawPods.